Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Dr. Bandy Lee, Assistant Clinical Professor in Law and Psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine, who assesses the potential danger of a mentally unstable president as Donald Trump faces re-election defeat. Beth Link, Director of the Census Counts Campaign, who talks about the Trump regime's decision to end the U.S. Census count early and her group's effort to involve Congress to ensure that the count is as accurate and inclusive as possible. And Lisa Graves, founder of True North Research, who examines how right-wing dark money is moving the Supreme Court and other federal courts to the right, seeking to cement a conservative majority in place for a generation or more. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Mass protests against police brutality in Nigeria prompted President Muhammadu Buhari to pledge to disband the hated Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS, accused of beatings, intimidation, and extrajudicial killings. Activists are calling for an overhaul of the Nigerian police. But days of protests have prompted the powerful Nigerian military to call for an end to the widespread protests that have spread to expatriate communities in England and Canada. The protests, which shut down key areas of the capital, Lagos, were prompted by the release of a video of SARS officers pulling two men out of a hotel and shooting one of them. The special unit has a reputation for targeting young men, where victims are often beaten with sticks and cut with machetes. Amnesty International reports it has documented at least 82 cases of torture, ill-treatment, and extrajudicial killings linked to SARS between 2017 and May of this year. During a week of mass protests, police fired live ammunition into crowds to break up protests at the Lagos airport. Activists are angry that there are no plans to prosecute SARS officers for reported abuses and to create a new SWAT team to replace a discredited SARS unit. Police reformers say real change must include retraining of officers, enforcing discipline, and full transparency of misconduct. For the second time, Purdue Pharma and its owner, the Sackler family, may receive a special deal and a settlement of claims against the company's highly addictive opioid painkiller, OxyContin. In the midst of its bankruptcy trial in New York, lawyers for the Sackler family are negotiating with the Trump Justice Department for a deal that would impose a $2 billion federal penalty but no criminal charges against the family, who've made billions of dollars in profits from selling the opioid drug since the 1990s. OxyContin is blamed for fueling the nationwide prescription painkiller epidemic that has killed more than 200,000 people since 1999. During the first indictment of Purdue Pharma in 2007, the drug maker bypassed federal prosecutors by lobbying top officials in the George W. Bush administration. The deal allowed the company to continue to aggressively market OxyContin. Purdue paid more than $630 million in federal fines for misleading marketing, and three top executives were each sentenced to three years of probation and 400 hours of community service. 47 states have since sued Purdue Pharma, which responded by filing for bankruptcy. 
David Sackler offered to settle the case with $3 billion and transform the drugmaker into a public benefit corporation that would be permitted to continue to sell OxyContin with profits benefiting the states and localities which had sued the drugmaker. But two dozen states' attorneys generals rejected the deal. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro called this apparent settlement a slap in the face to everyone who has had to bury a loved one due to this family's destruction and greed. It allows the Sackler family to walk away billionaires and admit no wrongdoing. In the final days of the 2020 election campaign, Democrats are suddenly optimistic they may be able to flip Texas blue, in spite of decades of voter suppression by Republicans. Democrats, flush with cash and favorable polls, are making a final push for 38 Texas electoral votes. In recent months, nearly a million Texans have registered to vote, mostly in the state's largest cities. In the early 2000s, Republicans lowered corporate taxes and provided subsidies to make Texas the most business-friendly state in the country. Texas did attract new companies and created hundreds of thousands of jobs. But the problem for Republicans is that the environment they built to attract those companies also drew people to the state who are not Republicans. Voter suppression was always a key strategy for the Texas GOP to stay in power, resulting in the state having one of the lowest voter turnouts in the U.S. But the state's demographic shift increasingly favors Democrats, with 40% of all Texans now being Black and Latinx. That, combined with Donald Trump's increasing unpopularity among Republicans, could make 2020 the year Democrats take control of the Texas State House for the first time since 2002 and possibly vote for a Democrat in the race for the White House and the U.S. Senate. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Throughout his four years in office, there's been much speculation about the state of President Trump's mental health. The fact that he's documented to have made more than 20,000 false or misleading statements during his time in the Oval Office, combined with other behaviors, has raised concern with mental health professionals. More recently, Mr. Trump's refusal to agree to a peaceful transfer of power if he should lose the election and his contradictory statements when asked to condemn violent white supremacist groups, have called into question his thinking on upholding basic democratic principles and opposing domestic terrorism. As Election Day approaches, the president has called his Democratic opponent Joe Biden a criminal, who should have been locked up weeks ago, and also denounced a reporter as a criminal for not reporting what he claims is Biden's criminal background. After contracting COVID-19 in early October, today Mr. Trump continues to hold campaign rallies that have proven to be coronavirus super-spreader events, exposing his depraved indifference to the more than 220,000 Americans killed by this disease. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Bandy Lee, Assistant Clinical Professor in Law and Psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. Here she discusses her concerns about the danger posed by President Trump's mental health condition in the stressful weeks before the election, and if he should lose, 
the prospect of violence committed by his supporters. We're entering the most dangerous period of this presidency, and the dangers cannot be underestimated, given that he has full powers of the presidency in his possession as he's facing a potential loss. And the greater the pressures grow, the more likely he becomes to lose. He will become far more vindictive, cruel, and dangerous uh, because that is the way that he copes with potential losses. We know that he cannot stand even ordinary criticism and lapses into conspiracy thinking and instigation of violence and sometimes commission of violence, as we saw when he withdrew troops to the effect of uh, a massacre of our allies and um, the assassination of a high-ranking general in a country with which we're very close to waging war with. So similar actions should be expected. Even more extreme actions in that vein should be expected because past violence often predicts future violence. And by now we know a good deal of this president's uh, patterns of behavior. And so we are looking at a great deal of potential violence ahead. Ordinary individuals would be able to tolerate criticism, challenges, or uh, dropping poll numbers, or even the loss of an election without needing to destroy the country or the, or the world. His psychology may not be able to withstand that. So the fact that we don't have concrete uh, guardrails against this uh, is very concerning. Is your main concern a war with, with another country, or is there some kind of internal violence that you think Donald Trump is capable of launching in the weeks ahead? Uh, it almost does not matter. What it ends up being is almost serendipitous. Um, but... It could be uh, internal civil war. It could be international war. It could be nuclear war. He's been heading toward nuclear war and policy and rhetoric um, in, in his expression of desire to wish to use nuclear weapons and asking why do we have them if we don't use them. Well, his policies since uh, becoming president have uh, been exactly in line with using nuclear weapons, and he's pulled out of all these treaties. So I think nothing can be off the table at this time. Dr. Lee, I did want to review some disturbing patterns of behavior we've seen around the country in recent months. There are Trump supporters out there who've committed acts of violence, and Donald Trump and others in administration have often celebrated and embraced that violence in those acts. With the election ahead, there are various groups, uh, like the Proud Boys and other white supremacists and white nationalist groups, who regularly uh, gather with semi-automatic weapons. There's been a call by Republicans in the Trump administration to patrol polling sites during Election Day. What is it that we should be conscious of as a nation in terms of the violence that some trace directly to Donald Trump and his bullhorn and dog whistle calls for support from these particular groups. You have said that violence, paranoia, and delusions are contagious. 
Is that part of the picture of what we're seeing? Now, as you said, he is blowing up dog whistles to try to call them to his defense. Um, white supremacist groups and terrorist groups have expanded in ways unseen under any other presidency. And now they are ripe for his use, his instructions. What you were referring to earlier, the contagiousness of violence. Uh, yes, if you remove the primary source, that alone is highly curative, uh, highly reduces violence. And so there might be some surge in the beginning, but if there were high levels of order being enforced, it's interesting that this president calls himself uh, the law and order president, but uh, what he's essentially saying is, or for psychotherapists, we interpret that as saying he needs more law and order applied to him. So if we hold the president more accountable, such as criminally prosecuting him, uh, removing him from office, doing things according to the law, that would actually be helpful in reducing violence. That was Dr. Bandy Lee, Assistant Clinical Professor in Law and Psychiatry at Yale University's School of Medicine. Her new book is titled Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Find more perspectives on the danger posed by the president's mental health condition in the closing weeks of the election campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 2020 census has faced unprecedented challenges due to both political interference and the COVID-19 pandemic. That has resulted in a situation where communities that were undercounted in the past are at risk of being further undercounted this year. After the Trump administration attempted to add a citizenship question to the census, much time and money was invested in a campaign that succeeded in stopping it. Then in response to the pandemic, census staff had to shift their training, door-to-door outreach and in-person events, to a digital platform. The every-decade census count is used to allocate seats in Congress and distribute roughly $1.5 trillion in federal funds for health care, education, highway construction, and nutrition programs. In late summer, the administration undermined the Census Bureau's own experts by trying to shorten the census timeline, disrupting the work that faith leaders, civil rights advocates, city officials, and civic leaders were doing to ensure everyone was counted. Trump officials decreed the census counting would end on September 30th, and by the time court challenges were ruled on by the Supreme Court, the final date was October 15th, two weeks short of October 31st, the historically mandated end date. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Beth Link, director of the Census Counts campaign at the Leadership Conference Education Fund. Here she describes the continuing effort to make the census as inclusive as possible and the important role that Congress could play in this process. I'm incredibly fearful that there are people out there who had they had more time or more certainty about when they could participate in the census, they would have and that we're missing their participation in the 2020 census because of that. But I think it's also important for folks to know, and and we're really focused on the fact that the census is not over. So right now, the Census Bureau is moving into an important 
stage of the census where they are tabulating, processing, and doing quality checks on the data that they've collected. Unfortunately, due to the Trump administration's effort to shortchange the process and shorten the timeline, the Census Bureau is faced with an impossible timeline to complete that uh, really onerous and intensive tabulation and processing uh, work that they have to do to ensure we have um, acceptably accurate census data. We know that, you know, the risk um, on the communities that have been historically messed in the census, marginalized communities, is even greater if the data processing and tabulation phases are shortened. It's really important, and we're calling on Congress um, to ensure that as the Census Bureau's experts, the administration and the Commerce Department asked back in April when we were faced with this pandemic and it was clear that the census was going to be very impacted by COVID-19, had asked for more time for that processing and that data tabulation um, and that they have until April to transmit the data to Congress. We're asking that Congress step in, take action, extend the timeline, and not force the Census Bureau to have to cut corners um, and shortchange the very communities that um, have been missed out decade after decade, but also ensuring that those folks have an opportunity to be represented accurately and completely in the 2020 Census. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case from the administration that it's still trying to exclude the undocumented. Can you explain what's happening with that? The Supreme Court stopped the Trump administration's attempt to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, um, an effort we know that would have been really detrimental to participation across the board and would have incited even more fear of participation in the census. After the the Supreme Court made that attempt, we've seen multiple efforts on the part of the administration to do what this administration has wanted to do, which is exclude um, people who are undocumented from being counted and the totals used for apportionment. And there's going to be a hearing before the Supreme Court on that issue. There are 11 total cases, but one of them is going to be before the Supreme Court at the end of November, on November 30th. Beth Link, it seems that Republicans aren't interested in having a complete count. So will it take flipping the Senate to Democrat and maybe also putting a Democrat in the White House to pursue what we might call census justice? The reality is is that a inaccurate, incomplete census hurts every single state in the country, and in particular, um, many of the the states that have been impacted by natural disasters and other extenuating factors are are run um, by Republicans. We have have actually, in fact, seen um, bipartisan, bicameral legislation introduced in both the House and the Senate that would uh, extend the statutory deadlines for apportionment and redistricting as the Census Bureau and the administration asked for back in April. The census, by ensuring that the data is is acceptably accurate, because again, it's going to skew political power uh, representation, but also the distribution of $1.5 trillion in federal funding every year. And those resources are going to go towards education, healthcare, infrastructure, the very uh, resources that communities need to rebuild from this global health pandemic. We're calling on Congress to step in. They can take action. If it can't happen before the election, there's certainly time and a lame duck to make it happen. But uh, it's critically important and urgent that it it happens um, so the Census Bureau has time to process and tabulate the data. Right now, the Census Bureau is faced with an impossible deadline of reporting census data to the White House and to Congress by the end of December. 
And so if they don't get relief, the Census Bureau itself has already said um, in, in the form of court filings and other statements that have been released publicly. We've also heard from the Government Accountability Office and from the Commerce Department's Inspector General's Office that it will be impossible for them to produce the data by the end of December. So we need that statutory relief to come from Congress, and they can, but they must act. That was Beth Link, director of the Census Counts campaign. Learn more about the efforts being made to arrive at an inclusive and accurate census count by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. During Judge Amy Coney Barrett's Senate confirmation hearings, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse focused his colleagues and the nation's attention on what he described as the dark money campaign to move the Supreme Court and other federal courts across the country to the right. Whitehouse and many legal observers say that precedent-setting rulings on women's reproductive rights, labor rights, access to affordable health care, Corporate pollution and climate regulations and same-sex marriage may all be overturned thanks to the influence of a shadowy network of wealthy right-wing donors and groups that include Federalist Society Board Co-Chair Leonard Leo, the Judicial Crisis Network, the Bradley Foundation, and the Koch brothers. Senator Whitehouse cited earlier investigations by the Washington Post, which found that conservative nonprofits had raised more than $250 million in donations between 2014 and 2017 that were used partly to support conservative policies and judges. Under IRS regulations, contributions to these nonprofits do not have to be publicly disclosed. Your reporter spoke with Lisa Graves, founder, executive director, and editor-in-chief at True North Research. Here she talks about her recent article titled dark money for Supreme Court briefs tied to former Federalist Society leader, and how, if Donald Trump's nominee Judge Barrett is confirmed by the Senate, that will likely cement a conservative majority on the Supreme Court in place for a generation or more. If you see their ads, the ads of the Judicial Crisis Network or some of the other groups, like like Charles Polk's group, they talk about uh, being a rule of law judge and limited constitutional government. Those are really code words that are, in essence, mislead the public because um, last year, Leonard Leo was, um, in essence, caught on tape telling donors in a closed-door meeting that this was a legal revolution, that this was a revival, in his, in his words, of the, what he called the structural constitution that would roll back a century of precedence. He said to that room of donors that no one in that room was alive to see the kind of legal revolution that these appointments were going to unfold on America. And so they're just not having an honest debate with the American people about what their agenda is. Some of the conversation has been focused on choice uh, and the effort uh, Trump's pledge to use his nominations to overturn Roe v. Wade, as well as his uh, commitment and determination to overturn the Affordable Care Act, uh, and her refusal to, to really address those questions in a, in a direct way. The fact is, is that the agenda is much broader than that. This effort to roll back this century of rights, modern American constitutional law and precedent um, would uh, potentially 
and is designed to take away the power of federal agencies to regulate corporations, including over climate change, pollution, uh, health and safety conditions for workers, to remove the rights of workers in terms of labor, labor rights, and civil rights as well. And so you have a, a really radically reactionary agenda that Leo has put forward. Now, that's been funded in part by the Bradley Foundation, as well as uh, Charles Koch through his foundation, his, his company, and possibly his personal uh, checking account. The Bradley Foundation um, is uh, a foundation here in Wisconsin, where I'm located, and it has nearly a billion dollars in assets from a couple of brothers in Wisconsin who are manufacturers who were super anti-labor. And the foundation has been funding efforts to basically roll back Americans' rights, in particular to roll back their labor rights, uh, workers' rights, as well as specifically to roll back and repeal the Affordable Care Act through judicial fiat. So those are some of the sort of key agenda items that we know from their own words when they're not running ads trying to mislead people about uh, Amy Barrett being a rule of law judge. She's really been chosen with the view that she will reverse precedents, that she will reverse people's rights. And unfortunately, Leonard Leo and his uh, secret funders who are spending millions to get her confirmed aren't being honest with the American people about their true agenda. I've heard some analysis of the push to move the Supreme Court and federal courts to the right as being somewhat of an insurance policy for right-wing forces in the country, given that uh, demographics and voting patterns are, are moving to the left, and that having the judiciary branch in their pocket would uh, be, in essence, a veto over policies that the right doesn't approve of. But as we conclude, there's been a lot of discussion more recently that if Joe Biden wins this presidential election, there are folks urging him to expand the court or to impose term limits or both on the justices that would be a, a method to rebalance the court. What, what is your view of some of that advice? Well, two things. First, I, I just want to say I, I really appreciated that Senator Blumenthal asked Amy Barrett to recuse herself in any cases involving the election, but she refused. So we have this illegitimate process where people have been put on positions on the court, uh, rammed through an election years in order to game the court, basically in order to secure that majority against progressive policies, but also against um, potentially our ability to even um, mitigate climate change. And so it's a true crisis of legitimacy of this Supreme Court. But it's also the case in my lifetime uh, for the last uh, 50, you know, one years, 52 years, there have been uh, 15 Republican presidential appointments to the Supreme Court and four Democratic appointments to the Supreme Court. The court has been captured. It's already greatly out of balance. And I think that any um, person concerned about the integrity and legitimacy of the court and its capacity would consider how to modernize the court, whether it should be expanded and whether other courts should be expanded, and also to make sure the courts better reflect uh, what America looks like and the diversity of legal experience uh, in our American legal community. I think it's vitally important that we have fair courts and courts that can handle the, the work and needs of uh, 21st century America. That was Lisa Graves founder, executive director, and editor-in-chief at True North Research. Find a link to her recent article on how right-wing dark money is shaping the U.S. Supreme Court by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've 
been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, WTND in Macomb, Illinois, KXMT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.